listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. We're studying the book of Luke. We're in chapter number 8 today. We were in chapter number 8 last week. In fact, we were chapter number eight a few weeks before that. So what does that tell you? It says we're going to be in the book of Luke for a little while, okay? So just relax and just uh, don't get in too big of a hurry, and we'll just enjoy this time studying God's Word together as we hear what, uh, what, what Luke has to say about the life of Christ. He's painting a picture for the readers to see who Jesus is and, and not to just understand what he has done, but why he did what he did and how that has an effect on those that hear and believe. Our culture has at least for as long as I can remember in my few 49 years, our culture has been fascinated by the angelic realm. It's just every, in, everywhere you turn, you're going to see some sort of book or, or television series or movie about something in the angelic realm. We're just, we're captivated about the things that we believe are there that you can't see. And, and in reality, our culture is really more just fascinated with the demonic more than the angelic, if we're going to be honest. I just started writing down some movie titles that came out over my lifespan. And, and if you're over 35, then you'll probably remember the first one. In, in fact, what, what do you think, if, if you're my age or older, what do you think that first Hollywood blockbuster about the de- demonic will be on my list? Absolutely. Never seen it. Ne- ne- never wanted to see it. I heard a girl's head turns around backwards. She throws up all everybody. I got no time for that. Don't even want to be fooling with it. That's just not my lane. Okay, so you got the exorcist. And then there was another one that came along about a, about a house that was haunted. The what? You folks watch demonic movies, don't you? Now. So the Amityville Horror, you know, The Exorcist has got like eight sequels. I don't know. And Amityville's got a half a dozen sequels. Uh, then there's these new ones that have come out. And, and listen, if you, if you thought Exorcist and Amityville was off the beaten path, then trust me, I've seen the trailers, and it tells me I don't need to be watching The Conjuring, okay? I don't need to be seeing that. Okay, I don't need to be seeing the one that spun off about some nun that comes out the wall, and I just got no time for that. Paranormal activity, y'all can have it. Don't need to be watching static on television. Don't need nothing coming out of it. Don't need these things crawling out of the TV to come and get to me. And then that one, he lived in your neighborhood and you, ma- you know your mama called him the omen, even though he wasn't. He lived in your neighborhood, and don't you invite the omen over here. I don't want to be messing with him. He's tearing up everything in the house, okay? And then we got all kinds. Now, do you realize that we've got superheroes in our culture now that are demonic? I mean, there literally is a hellboy comic book character that has made the silver screen. He's, he's literally a demon gone good. Imagine that, okay? It's just, it's bizarre, okay? Our culture is fascinated by the demonic. 
And, and it's funny to me that, that Hollywood, who absolutely refuses to believe that there is a God that created, will believe, or at least will feel free to make money off of a culture that believes in some things they can't see, and for whatever reason, they prefer to believe in the things that will bring them harm than the things that actually love them and want to have a unique relationship with them. But nevertheless, they're fascinated. We're going to come to a, a, a scene today that if, if Hollywood w- would just get their act together, I feel like they've got a blockbuster right here with one problem. In the end, it's the Lord who comes out on top. And, and, it's, and it's a pretty quick encounter, and that would ruin their, you know, special effects and whatnot. But what we're going to see today, coming off the heels of last week, where we witnessed Jesus' divinity, Jesus' power and authority. We, we witness who Jesus is to be seen as by his authority over nature. Jesus said in, in chapter number 8, verse 25, uh, not verse 25, but verse 22 of last week, he said, let's get in the boat, let's sail across the Sea of Galilee, we've got to go to the other side, and you'll remember that they encountered a great storm that raged. And while that storm was raging, Jesus was fast asleep in the boat. Asleep, exhausted from ministry, and yet his disciples were going crazy, worried that they were going to be going down to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, and woke him up and said, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus, wiping the the sleep from his eyes, stands up and goes, hush, be still, and instantly, boom, calm across the lake. Enough to make the disciples in the boat look at one another and go, who is this we're dealing with? I mean, we've seen him do some amazing things, but, but at his voice, the wind and the seas obey. Well, of course they do, because the creator can command the creation, and it must bend to his will. Luke continues on with the second of four miracles that we're going to see, identifying the authority and the power of God that rests on and in Jesus of Nazareth. Let's just read this first few verses. Uh, Chapter number 8, verses 25 is where we'll begin as we look at what I'm calling the bondage breaker. Let's look first, verse number 26. I'm sorry, I said 25. Verse number 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. This is also identified in Mark as the country of the Gerasenes. But in Matthew, he refers to it as the country of the Gadarenes. Don't, Don't let that upset you too much because there are several little cities in that region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and they have names that are familiar. Gergesa and Gadara were cities over there. And so those uh, gospel writers were just saying that's the area in which Jesus sailed to. The, the area of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. 
Now, this word demon in the New Testament comes from a word that was used prior to the New Testament writing. And and for a number of years, that word could refer to uh, any type of being that was between the limitations of a human being, but, but wasn't exercising the dominance and ability of a divine being. You know, there were, there were uh, Greek and Roman gods that they believed in, the mythologies. And so they had even this idea, had this idea of, of a being that came from the heavenly realms. Not quite a god, but better, bigger, more powerful than human. By, by the time of the New Testament, writing. This word was primarily used to define that that negative type of spiritual being that we would call demons. We, We would understand these as angels that were created by God at, at, at his disposal and have in some way had the opportunity to, like Satan, rebel against God. Now we can look at Old Testament passages and we could take the time to do that this morning, but there's a lot of interpretational leeway that you have to give there. And I don't want us to, to spend our time on that so much. That's some great reading for you to do and, and learning about angelology and demonology. It's great reading. You go do that. We'll talk about it afterwards. But basically what we want to understand is that this man was inhabited by spirits of an evil nature. And almost every time you find this word in the New Testament, that's what it's referring to. In fact, it's what it is all of the time. But this man came to meet Jesus from the city who had demons. Now, another thing I want to bring to your attention, if you read this in the book of Matthew... You're going to read that Matthew said there were two men who came to him. Again, don't let that upset you too much. It's it's not so that Matthew's telling one story and these guys didn't get it right. It seems that there were two men and Mark and Luke focus on the one who did most of the talking and most of the responding, if, if not all of the responding. So Matthew said, no, there were two guys. Mark and Luke focus on the one who directly encountered Jesus. Luke tells us that for a long time he had worn, what does it say? No clothes. This man ran around naked. This is not the kind of guy you want in your neighborhood. Because he's running around for a long time completely unclothed but but he's also the type of person that you would say okay something's not right with this individual something must be wrong for him to be exposing himself to the elements and allowing himself to suffer I mean there's even a television show on about folks that are taken out into the wilderness to survive naked That's how far we've come to be entertained in this culture. I mean, how ridiculous. I mean, that is just, uh, that's dumb. I just, I don't get it. But nevertheless, this man had no clothes and was under the control of these demons. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Where the the people would place the bodies of, of of their dead 
oftentimes, especially in this area, which is a, a, a cliffy area, they would find the caves and the little holes in the sides of the cliff, and they would put their dead in there because they might not have land to bury them. They, they might not have any other opportunity. So they would put them into these cliffs, and this is where this man lived, in the tombs, in the caves where the decaying dead lived. This is where he made his home. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What we're seeing here in these verses is a demonic introduction. This man who was controlled by demons, living in the tombs, running around naked, is drawn to Jesus and he comes to him and he says, what are you doing here? What do you have to do with me? What's going on? Jesus, son of the most high. Now, you want, you want to see something really cool? If you've got a Bible, I don't, I don't have it for the, for the screens, but if you've got your Bible, I want you to do this. I want you to turn in your Bible. I want you to go back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse number 31 and 32. This is really cool. Okay, so we're going to go back in time real quick. Going back in time. Mary, the, the teenage girl, minding her own business, betrothed to a man by the name of Joseph, got, got plans and excitements, and all of a sudden angel shows up and says, guess what, you're going to have a baby out of wedlock. And she's trying to wrestle with these things. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name, what class? Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Who's going to call him that? Well, a naked demon-possessed dude on the other side of the lake, and Mary wasn't even there to hear him say it. He runs up and says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, we're going to go back just a, just a few minutes before, probably. Out in the boat, Jesus come in the storm, Disciples witnessing what he's done, seeing these amazing things. He's just commanded nature, and nature said, yes, sir. And the disciples looked around and go, who is this that can even command? And, and wouldn't you know it that the demon had to show up on the shore to tell them who he was? He's Jesus, son of the most high God. This Demonic introduction that's just happening out of the blue. We're just getting out of the boat. We're just bringing our stuff off, wondering what in the world we're doing here. And naked demon man shows up and introduces himself. He says at the end of that verse 28, I beg you, do not torment me. Why is he saying this? Verse 29. For he, talking about Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. 
Seems like as man is running forward, everybody's amazed and wondering what's going on. And Jesus, Son of the Most High God, knows exactly what's happening. And apparently, he's commanding this demon by his authority to come out. And the demon's going, please, Lord, don't torture me. And then Luke tells us, what else this demon had been doing to the man? This little parenthetical explanation. He says, for many a time, a bunch of times, this demon had seized this man. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. The community didn't know what to do with him. They couldn't put him in the houses because he wouldn't stay clothed. He's running around. He's out of his mind. They've tried to guard him. They've tried to shackle him. They've tried to hold him down. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This man had no control over his own faculties. He had no control over what he did, where he lived, where he slept, how he acted. And every attempt of the community to try to suppress this man and deal with his bondage had ended up in him breaking free and just running off into the desert where no doubt he would be exposed to extreme heat and go without water. No doubt the animals would be able to bite and to hurt and to cause him pain. This poor guy that was in bondage to these demons. In fact, this one that God created, whom Jesus had come to demonstrate love to, these demons were destroying And they knew that the one they were in contact with had the authority to torment them. Had the authority to banish them and to deal with them in a very harsh way. And they were begging Jesus not to torment them. Verse 30. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. A Roman legion of soldiers would be over 6,000 men. I think it wouldn't be as accurate to say, therefore, that means this man had 6,000 demons in him. But but the, the picture is clear. There's more than one. This man is being tormented. This man is being brutalized by the evil spirits that love to seek and kill and destroy. The Spirit knows who Jesus is, and He knows what He has the authority to do, and He knows what His ultimate end will be. This demonic introduction. But let's start looking at a divine release. This man under bondage, probably all his life, for many a time, it says, for a long time. But let's see this divine release. Verse number 31, and they begged him, legion, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So these demons are saying to Jesus, Please don't torment us. Please don't send us into the abyss. This word abyss, it's a broad term, but at its core, it means bottomless. 
It, it means a, a place of, of, of holding, almost like we would think of the deepest, darkest dungeon. Don't throw me in the dungeon. Why? Because that's below, underneath, everywhere where everything trickles down and I don't want to be at the bottom of the bottom. This word is used often specifically in the book of Revelation. I know there's a lot of argument and there's a lot to be said about the book of Revelation. But as a church, we hold to that book and we understand it from both a figurative and a literal standpoint. One of these days, probably the last two years of effective ministry that I have left in my life, We'll do a study on the book of Revelation, and then I'll resign and go somewhere to just be, you know, unable to do pastoral ministry anymore. Because it's so confusing, and it causes so much argument at the time. And, and quite frankly, you got to do study in Revelation, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Zechariah. And my goodness, I have a hard enough time studying one book, okay? But in the book of Revelation... This word abyss refers to something that's translated to as the bottomless pit. This is a place where the book of Revelation says that is going to be where the, the beast and the false prophet emerge from. It's where Satan is bound for years. It's where his demons are released and then they're held there. In some portions of Scripture, like Second Peter, there's a reference to the possibility of angels that appeared in the book of Genesis that, that may have had some sort of interaction with humanity and and the women from that era, and God has judged them and put them in this place. All kinds of interpretational, you know, broadness there. But that's what these demons are saying. Please, Jesus, don't send us to the abyss. Whatever that is, they didn't want to go there. And they knew he had the authority to send them there. And it sounds a whole lot like they're expecting to eventually be there. But they don't want to go today. And so this demonic introduction moves into the deliverance phase, this release of the divine. And they're begging him not to send them into the abyss. Now, verse number 32, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And those of you who have been around the scripture for a little while are going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought pigs and swine were unclean animals in the, in the Mosaic law. And you would be right. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14 specifically say that swine are unclean or to be left alone, not to be held on to and not even to be touched. Now, Southern Americans, let that sink in. <laughs> Some of you will bolt from here when we're done to get to Sonny's before the rest of them. Get, no Sonny's, y'all. No, no, no Blackburns. I, I felt a tear well up in my eye. No Blackburns. You know, no barbecue. You say, well, wait a minute. What are these pigs doing here? Keep in mind, they're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which would be on the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is primarily a Gentile region. So it shouldn't shock us at all that they're a herd of pigs because they're Gentiles. They get barbecue. The Jews don't. Now this is 
potentially a Jewish man or a Jewish settlement. There were Jews in that area, but this was primarily a Gentile area. And so as this encounter is going on with this legion of demons, with with the Son of the Most High God, they say, please don't send us to the abyss, Jesus. You've got the authority to torment us. You've got the authority to send us to where we're ultimately going to be because of our rebellion. Could we talk about the pigs? Could, could Could we entreat you to maybe change your mind about sending us away to sending us into this large herd of pigs. I believe it is Mark that says there were about 2,000 pigs. Now, I've been around some pig farms. I've never been around 2,000 pigs. That's a bunch of pigs. I'm imagining for, for this herdsman society, that's probably a pretty big amount of coin there, 2,000 pigs. They said, we see these pigs, they're feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man. You know why? You know why they came out of the man? Because the son of the most high God said, get. This same one who said to the storm, hush, can say to the demonic realm, no. And they're begging, and he's saying, all right, fair enough. Get into the pigs. And they came out of the man and entered the pigs. And what did the pigs do? The herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. You know why? Because Satan and his horde are all about seeking and destroying and devouring. It's just what they do. Off the side of the cliff, the pigs jumped. And as the herdsmen are standing there, they're watching all of these that they're caring for. Turn and follow the leader. And off the cliff they ran and into the sea they went and drown. It, it was interesting when I had the opportunity to go to Israel. If you ever have the chance to do that, please take advantage of that opportunity if you can afford it and are willing to get on an airplane. It will revolutionize how you read your Bible. Because I remember standing up on the Golan Heights there in Israel on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and being able to look down and the guide saying that area down there is what we believe to have been this region of the Gerasenes and it would have been off of some of those cliffs below you that they would have jumped into the sea which would have been farther up at that time and to be able to look and so as I read this in my mind I'm feeling the wind blow over my over my hat and I'm looking down where those pigs ran down and jumped to their death the herdsmen are looking around And the disciples are looking around. The herdsmen went, verse 34. The herdsmen saw what had happened. They fled and told it to the city and in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they found what? They found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, 
clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Herdsmen are looking around and what, what is happening? Disciples are looking around. What's going on? But the man who was tormented, sitting at the feet of the Son of the Most High God, he had no idea he was going to encounter Jesus that day. In fact, it's possible he had no idea about anything. But at this point, he knows who he is. He knows who he's in the presence of. He has the wherewithal to look around and go, can I please have something to cover myself with? And he's at the feet of the one who has set him free from bondage. You know anything about bondage? You know anything about being held under the control of something that you just can't get release from no matter how hard you try? I'm not talking about necessarily demonic possession, but do you know anything about bondage? Wanting something different in your life, but having what seems to be no control whatsoever. We see this man set free and at the feet of the one with the authority to give him that freedom. Boy, did we have a demonic introduction. Loud, in your face, all kinds of bizarre that moved quickly to a divine release. Chains come undone. Prison doors sling open. That that was holding on to him let go and he's able to be free. Because of Christ, he was released. And in this picture, we see a beautiful snapshot of what it means to be a true disciple. Released from sin, released from bondage, brought out of darkness into light, and sitting at the feet, ready for whatever else this one who has blessed me so has for me to do. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? What's he going to ask? I'm ready to go. Not only a demonic introduction, a divine release, but a divided response. Jesus has done something equally as amazing as calming the storm. He has done what no one else has been able to do, and he's been able to instantly transform someone that everybody knew. Everybody was afraid of. Everybody wanted off their property. Everybody wished would just go somewhere else. And they see him transformed instantly. And we've got an interesting divided response. Verse 36. Those who had seen it told them, how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. 
Does that not strike you as odd? That, that the people of this area had seen the, the, the most depraved of their midst be transformed, be released from this bondage, be in his right mind and clothed and under control and set free. And what are they doing? They're going, sir, you need to go away. It boggles my mind. And and several different Bible students have written books and commentaries on why they were afraid. And none of them satisfy my curiosity. It's so bizarre to me that they would see this happen and yet go, yeah, we would just as soon you go away. The only thing that I can land on that some have suggested is that they see the transformation that Jesus brought and were afraid that he might try the same on them. Now, they weren't all demon-possessed, but this man that just showed up on the shore obviously had authority the likes they had never witnessed and could do things beyond their imagination and could bring people into radical change. And all I can figure is that they're saying, we don't want him to start messing with us. Not the least of which, he's just cost us whatever 2,000 pigs would bring on the open market. And apparently this one who had been released was worth far less to them than the economic value of those things they have counted the cost of. And they'd rather Jesus just go away. We scratch our head at that. But I think Matthew and Mark and Luke, all who record the same thing, I think the story is there for a very specific purpose in that telling disciples, you might expect the world to just be enthralled by what Jesus can do and offers to be for them and do in their life for their benefit. And they'll look right at you and they'll say, I don't have time for that can convince them as much as possible, and yet they'll look right at you and go, yeah, just it costs too much for me to believe. Well, yeah, I can see the validity in that, but yeah, now, don't be surprised, follower of Jesus. When Jesus works in others, and these that can clearly see, see it, and yet choose to reject They looked and saw and said no. Verse number 38. The man, however, from whom the demons had gone, begged that he might be with him. Jesus, please, can I go with you? I I, I got nothing here. Can can I go with you and your disciple wherever you go? I'll go. Whatever you're going to do, wherever you're going to say it, wherever you're going to travel, I'm with you. I'll do, I'll be, I'll leave, whatever. You would think that Jesus would say, finally, somebody I don't have to talk in to getting in the boat. Somebody that I'm not constantly trying to get them to hurry up and catch up. Finally. Finally. 
You would think Jesus would say, see boys, this is what I'm talking about right here. I ask you about your faith in the boat. This guy's got it. I'm bringing with him so you can see a constant reminder of what good, solid faith looks like. And that's not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus looks at him and says to him, verse 39, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. If you've grown up in and around the church, then you've probably heard sermons that are preached about going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature in the deepest, darkest, farthest reaches of humanity where there's no electricity, where there's no automobiles, where there's nothing of the creature comforts that we're aware of, and that's where God wants you to go. And you're going, I'd just assume God send me to the house. Is there somebody at the house I could talk to? I got some rough neighbors, Lord, don't you think? We, we want, that wasn't a shot, Chad. You're my neighbor. That was not a shot. That was an accident. I was hypothetical, not you. Okay. Can I just go to the house? This guy's going, Jesus, where are you going? I don't care how dark it is. I've been there. I, I, I don't care how gloomy it is. I lived there. I don't care where you're going. If you're there, I'm there. And Jesus goes, that's what I want. But won't you take that to the house? And you think, well, why would Jesus want him to go to the house? Well, it could be a number of things. We're not sure because it doesn't tell us why. But, but as we speculate, that's what we do. We wonder why. It could have been that this man was a Gentile and that this wasn't the time for Jesus to bring a Gentile into this group in order to take the message to the Jews because they wouldn't understand that. It could have been that. Or it could have just been the fact that Jesus wanted him to be the example like nobody else could be in that region because do you think everybody knew who this dude was? So just this week, Justin, I don't know if you posted it, but at the mission they, post, they posted a picture of a gentleman who used to panhandle. Remind me his name. Greg. Okay. I think he, he was out at Chick-fil-A, but, but wasn't he also up here at times at the McDonald's? Didn't he point at people and, and do this a lot? He would point and do like that. Y'all have seen him. Beard. But, but he's, he's been around folks that have loved him and have poured Jesus into him. And they posted a picture this week of him standing up clean-shaven, smile on his face, taking a step forward. You go, well, what does that have to do with anything? Same thing. You know, we got, you think folks didn't know who this man was? Everybody knew who he was. If nothing less, word was going to travel about this guy who had an encounter with a man from Galilee who through his transformation cost us thousands of denarii. At least people were going to hear that story. And when that guy walked around and folks go, hey, hey, aren't you? He goes, yes, I am. Let me tell you about the one who has set me free. He's Jesus, son of the most high God, because I don't think Jesus would have let him forget that. 
and throughout. Mark tells us that he takes that story throughout the entire Decapolis. The Decapolis was an area of 10 cities out in Dallas, Fort Worth. They call that the Metroplex because it's a big, broad area of population. They call the Decapolis the area of 10 cities. Mark says this man went throughout the whole area telling people about what Jesus did for him at home. He just let home expand a little larger and a little larger. I hit this neighborhood. Yeah, man, I'm going to the next one. Before long, he's reached the entire 10 cities. Jesus said, I, I, don't, I don't need you with me. I, I'm going to go south. I got some other business to do, but I, I want you to tell them uh, north on the eastern side of the lake just who I am. And, and you know what word's going to travel in just a, a few years about this one that they heard about Jesus, that this man told them about that set him free? They're going to hear about him being crucified by the Romans. But so much was going to happen within that time period that there's no way those folks in the north were going to hear about this one crucified that had set him free. Yeah, the Romans killed him. But three days later, they found his tomb empty. And those people up north were going to be going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. So Jesus that set the crazy man from the garrison's area free, they crucified him and he got up from the dead? Yeah, well, he must be son of the most high God. Faith steps forward. Jesus, can I go to be with you? No, I want you to go to the house. Okay. I'll go to the house, and I'll tell him what he did. And he went, verse number 39, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. A few thoughts, and we'll be done. Demonic introduction, divine release, divided response. Many rejected and sent him away, but one obeyed. And oh, what Jesus did with the one who was willing to just go home and share with those around him what Jesus had done for him. Now, listen, church. We today are at battle with the exact same enemy. Now, we look around our culture and you say, I wonder why it is that it seems that there's not the kind of demon possession things going on like they were in the New Testament. I'm sure that there are, but you got to understand everyone who seems uh, out of their mind, everyone who seems to be lost in some sort of, uh, of different reality, that's not all demon possession. Sometimes it's, uh, it's drug abuse. Sometimes it's just mental illness. But at times, I'm sure there is demonic activity. Satan is still active in our generation with the same strategies. And you know what they are? Bondage. Keeping those that are away from Christ in bondage to their sin and trying to catch those who know Christ in bondage to whatever they'll let him have a foothold in. His strategy is the same 1 Peter 5, 8 says that Satan and his demonic horde are constantly lurking, intent on human destruction. Your Bible probably says, looking to whom he may devour. The demonic realm is still active and wants to eat you up. 
And they're looking for opportunities, not necessarily to possess you, but to lie to you and to draw you into bondage. It worked then, it works now. 1 John 5, 19 says that everything in this world lies in the power of the evil one. It doesn't mean that the evil one has control over everything. It just means this world system that we live in is under the leading of the evil one. And he does orchestrate to keep enslaved those that are without Christ and to draw those who are in Christ back into their old way of thinking and living, if he can. Colossians chapter number 2, verses 13 through 15 says that Jesus has by his cross defeated all the forces of evil. Now that doesn't mean that prior to the cross that there was a cosmic battle waging back and forth between God and Satan and who's going to win? It's never been that way. Satan has always been defeated from before creation. But at the cross, he made it evident to everything. They're defeated. They have no authority when it comes to Christ. His authority is superior. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 says that believers are always engaged in spiritual warfare. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. It feels like it. We get frustrated with one another. We get angry. We get bitter with people. But we're not fighting people. We're fighting the forces of darkness that will use these relationships in order to keep us in bondage. How many of us know Jesus as Savior but have been in bondage because I've been feuding with somebody for many, many years? The enemy says, I don't have to indwell them. I've got them bound in their hatred and their bitterness. But we have an armor, Ephesians 6 says. That we put on, if we will, that God has provided for us where we can stand against that evil that loves to keep us beat down, held down, and ineffective. James 4, 7 says that daily victory for the Christian demands that we put on the armor. We submit ourselves to God by walking by faith and actively resist the advances of the enemy. But that's a decision we've got to make. It's not just going to happen. What Satan has for us looks good. It smells good. It tastes good. And the next thing you know, we're in the bondage that he has baited us into. We have to stand and resist and say no to what our flesh wants to embrace. Ephesians 4.27 says that we've got to pay attention that we don't allow the enemy an open door, a foothold. We got to make sure we lock up the areas of our life to keep him from wedging himself in. He loved to do it. He'll wedge himself in with good things. And the next thing you know, we're focusing all of our attention on those good things than on Christ. We've got to be watchful. We've got to be on top of and making sure we keep all the doors of our life locked to the lurkings of the enemy. What are our marching orders? We battle this same one. We remember that that release is still available. 
our marching orders. Satan is very much active. Bondage is still his primary strategy. He'll use the occult. He'll use the, in, in parts of the world, he'll use voodoo and things of that nature. In, in Haiti and the Dominican Republic where that's active, some places he uses paganism. In other places, he's got tribal religions under their domination. He's got uh, uh, religious cults, things that sound like Christianity that aren't. He's keeping us in bondage. Humanistic self-reliance is what our world is doing today. Atheism. Satan keeps those in bondage under his control. But Jesus still frees those who are in bondage. He sets them out of darkness into light. He sets us free not only from our sin and be given a new identity, but he still sets us free when bondage comes into our life. When things in our life begin to take a harder control over us than our walk with Jesus, he'll set us free from those as well because he's still the bondage breaker. And the marching order that he gave that man who was released is the same to us today. Freed people need to share about their freedom with those around them. We don't worry about the world until we have evangelized the house. We can't spend too much time thinking about the state until we've addressed the county. We've got a lot of work to do. And and, and you know what? Probably some out of here need to be following him to some dark regions that he's prepared you for that doesn't frighten you at all. It's just a matter of deciding to do it because that's what he's asked you to do. But every one of us who have been set free look and sound like that man. And every one of us have the call. Go to your home and make known what Jesus has done for you. There's folks around you in bondage to all kinds of things. Addiction. They're in bondage to uh, a thought about themselves because of a physical or an emotional or or, or a mental limitation that they have. And, And so they're in bondage to how they think about themselves. And you know what? You know the bondage breaker. You know the one who can set them free from whatever is holding them by the power of his cross. Through the word of his mouth, he has the authority to set us free, even when our circumstances aren't necessarily changed. Jesus has the authority of God because he is God the Son. He has power over nature. He has authority over demons. And he's still setting us free from bondage. Every head bowed, every eye closed. What, what bondage did you bring in here? Like what, what's, what's the enemy using in your life to keep his control in you? Oh, you're not possessed. You don't need a, an exorcist. But you do need a deliverer. Door you've left open. Enemies creeped in, and you've bought into the lie, and now it's a part of your life, and no matter how hard you try, you can't let go. Listen, Jesus will break that bondage if you'll just seek him. Turn to him. Confess the sin. 
Ask him to help you. Ask him to give you strength to say no today and then moving forward to root that out of your life, whatever it is. Maybe it's just a thought that you can't let go of about yourself because of something you can't change. And it's a bondage that the enemy is using to keep you from stepping into what God has called you to do and to be. Tell the bondage breaker about that. Let him redefine what the enemy has lied to you about. Let him show you who you are in his family. Who's in bondage that you know and have a relationship already with that needs to be consistently encouraged by you who have been freed? That encouragement has always got to sound like Christ and has always got to be pointed back to Him. The freedom giver, the bondage breaker. Maybe it is that you're here and you've never trusted Christ. Today would be a great day to let him have your sin in its entirety and walk out of here free, given a new name, a new destiny, a new opportunity to serve him who loved you enough to pay an ultimate price so that you might be set free. So, Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the bondage breaker. God, show us where we are in bondage, where we've allowed the enemy. Those of us who know your son as Savior, show us where we've allowed the enemy to entice us into bondage and where we're living under his control by not simply confessing our sin and walking with you. I pray you'll give freedom where it is needed. I pray that you will save those who may not yet know Christ in relationship by faith. And God, give us all the courage to go out and share what you've done in us with those around us. Whether it's at work or in the neighborhood or on the ball field, wherever we're at, school. I pray you'll give us courage to talk about Jesus and to let that conversation be what drives us. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask that you'll use us this week. Order our steps. Help us to see them so that we can be obedient. What you're going to do to glorify yourself. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen.